0: Makes no difference now, what kind of life. Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is January 4th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is It Makes No Difference Now. Calcium channel blockers, or beta blockers, for atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And our guest skeptic today is Dr. Timlin Glasser, and he's a fourth-year resident in emergency medicine at the Lee Valley Health Network and future medical toxicology fellow at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Welcome to the SGM, Timlin.
1: I'm excited to be here.
0: Now, Timlin, I'm going to call you Timlin through the rest of this show because I already probably mispronounced your last name. Can you confirm Glazer Glasser? It's
1: Glazer. That's okay, boss.
0: Ah, see? So one of my superpowers is mispronouncing people's names, knowing the lyrics to every 80s song, and being able to quote any 80s movie. So, Timlin, sorry I got your name wrong, but it was expected. Now, I'm not going to get my second guest skeptic's name wrong because this is matt murphy known as murph he's a third year resident in emergency medicine at lee valley health network he has an interest in free open access to medical education and is currently following the ebm track in his residency welcome to the s matt
2: thanks ken i'm excited to talk nerdy with you
0: oh i can tell it's in your voice people can hear it the s they're listening So guys why did you select this paper? I mean when we approached this idea of doing um, Grand Rounds or the conference today there was a number of articles we could have selected. There is a tsunami of papers published every year and the SGEM likes to look at something published within the last calendar year. You narrowed it down to three papers to consider reviewing but I really want to know why this study
1: so for this particular highly anticipated journal club my fearless colleague and i surveyed our residency program um, our very astute residents uh, asking for controversial topics that they would like to discuss we narrowed these down to a topic we felt we hadn't discussed very much and warranted some more attention so we ultimately chose this particular article because it attempts to answer a complex question Uh, That is, how to manage patients in AFib with rapid ventricular response and concurrent decompensated uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We kind of figured, what is the purpose of Journal Club, if not to search for answers to our specialties' more complex questions?
0: Yes, uh, it's lifelong learning when it comes to medical education. We're doing this as a Journal Club. And there are five rules to the SGEM Journal Club, five being, of course, my favorite number because I can count to it on one hand. So gentlemen, let it go through those five rules of the Journal Club and remind the SGEM listeners about those rules. Um, What's the first rule?
2: You must talk or tweet about the SGEM Journal Club.
0: Yes, it's very important, especially if we're using social media as a platform, to do knowledge translation. Uh, We know that it can take over 10 years for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient. And Sir Mark Walport famously said, quote, science is not finished until it's communicated. And so that's what we're trying to do today. We're trying to communicate. What's the second one? The EBM answer is, it all depends. Yes, it does. And I learned this very early on from my EBM mentor, Dr. Andrew Worster, out of McMaster University. He taught me that it does all depend. There are lots of nuances to the application of the literature, and it requires critical appraisal skills, clinical judgment, and asking the patients about their values and preferences. So at the end of the day, usually the answer to any EBM question is, It all depends. How about the third rule?
2: Don't panic. Even your faculty is not sure of some of the answers.
0: Ooh, I hope this makes some of the faculty a little nervous. Um, But it is super hard to stay up on all the relevant medical literature. It is a task I don't think any of us can do. There's this tsunami of new medical information being published Every day and it can be like drinking from a fire hose. It can be overwhelming at times. So don't panic You may not know the answer. You don't need to know the answer to everything and as professor Feynman famously said It's okay to say I don't know and I often find myself with residents or with patients or with colleagues and a clinical question comes up and I'm quite comfortable saying I don't know I don't have enough information on that. I'm going to have to go look that up, and that's fine. How about the fourth?
1: It's all about the methods.
0: Yeah, people would say, it's all about the base, about the base. But I would say, it's all about the methods, about the methods. This is the most important section of the paper. We just said there's so much information being published every day. And it can be like drinking from a fire hose. You can choke on all the information, drowned, and not be able to pick the signal out of all that noise. And Professor Altman said, almost 30 years ago in the BMJ, back in 1994, quote, we need less research, better research, and research done for the right reasons that have patient-oriented outcomes. So we need to ask the right questions that have patient-oriented outcomes and use proper high-quality methods to answer those important questions. All right, the fifth and final.
2: Be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the s Journal Club.
0: Yes, skepticism is such an important concept that I want people to learn. And this is what I'm teaching usually to residents, but also to uh, colleagues. It's difficult to navigate through the medical literature, and it's difficult to navigate through life without skepticism. And Aristotle, thousands of years ago, encouraged people to be, quote, be a free thinker and don't accept everything you hear as truth. Be critical and evaluate what you believe in. And I think that is super important. So those are the five rules for SGM Journal Club. How about we get to a case that we're gonna discuss today?
1: Yeah, this is the case. A 62 year old male with a past medical history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction presents to your emergency department via ambulance for palpitations and shortness of breath that started earlier that day. He arrives with an irregular heart rate of 142 beats per minute Remainder of his vital signs are unremarkable. On physical exam, you notice three plus pitting edema of both lower extremities and bibasilar basilar when auscultating his lungs. He takes multiple medications at home, including a beta blocker, an angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor, and a loop diuretic. You order an ECG and confirm the patient has atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. The patient is very symptomatic and you need to decide which pharmacologic agent you will use to treat his current condition.
0: So atrial fibrillation, uh, this is a very common dysrhythmia and it's seen on a regular basis by emergency physicians. And we have covered AFib a number of times on the SGEM. We did it on SGM number 88, shock through the heart. The Ottawa Aggressive Atrial Fibrillation Protocol, but we also looked at atrial fibrillation on SGM number one thirty three, just beat it atrial fibrillation with diltiazem or metoprolol, but then we took another look in SGM number two twenty two, rhythm is gonna get you into atrial fibrillation pathway. You can see how I do know all these 80s songs, because SGM number two sixty was. Quit playing games with my heart. Earlier delayed cardioversion for recent onset of AFib. And then finally, the last time we looked at atrial fibrillation was SGM number 267. AFib of the night. Chemical versus electrical cardioversion.
2: Now, as we discussed in SGM number 133, clinicians routinely employed beta blockers or calcium channel blockers for rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation. Multiple studies have demonstrated that both agents are effective in decreasing ventricular rate to an acceptable range, and current AHA guidelines prove their use in uncomplicated atrial fibrillation.
0: However, the use of beta blockers and calcium channel blockers for rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response and concurrent decompensated heart failure with reduced ejection fraction remains, in a word controversial.
2: That's right, Ken. Current guidelines specifically recommend against the use of calcium channel blockers despite limited evidence, and that is level C evidence according to the AHA. For the ED clinician, such a scenario poses a conundrum, as both the disease process and the intervention can worsen heart failure and contribute to cardiogenic shock.
0: What's the clinical question we're going to try to answer today? In patients
1: with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction presenting to the ED in atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, are there significant differences in adverse outcomes for patients treated with IV diltiazem versus IV metoprolol?
0: And what's the reference?
1: And the paper we'll be covering today is an article from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine by Hasbrook et al titled acute management of atrial fibrillation and congestive heart
0: failure with reduced ejection fraction in the emergency department. All right, let's run through the PCOT, that's the population, the exposure, the comparison, the outcome, and the type of study design. What was the population they were looking at in this cohort?
2: The study included adult patients age 18 years or older who presented to the emergency department with atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response and had a formal echo with an ejection fraction uh, less than or equal to 40% during the same encounter.
0: And then they excluded those patients who didn't receive a rate controlling agent in the emergency department within 12 hours. Pregnant patients, so we have very limited information on pregnant patients, and anyone who is incarcerated. What was the exposure?
2: Intravenous stiltiazone.
0: And what was the comparison group? Intravenous metoprolol. And let's run through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome of interest in this study?
1: The primary outcome measured was adverse events, of which hypotension, defined as systolic blood pressure, less than 90, requiring fluid bolus or vasopressor administration, uh, as well as bradycardia, defined as a heart rate less than 60 beats per minute, worsening heart failure, defined as increase in oxygen requirements by at least two liters within four hours, or the need for inotrope within 48 hours.
0: And they had a number of secondary outcomes. What were they?
1: The secondary outcomes were incidence of rate control failure, admission level of care, ED length of stay, hospital length of stay, and in-hospital mortality.
0: And what type of study was this?
1: This This was a single center retrospective study.
0: All right, so the author's conclusions from their paper was, quote, There was no difference in total adverse effects between heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patients treated with Diltiazem versus Metoprolol, for acute atrial fibrillation. However, patients with diltiazem had higher incidence of worsening congestive heart failure symptoms, defined as an increased oxygen requirement within four hours of initiation of ionotropic support within 48 hours, end of quote. Well, for these uh, critical appraisals, we have checklists. So we're gonna run through the 12 questions for this observational study. And the first question is, did the study address a clearly focused issue?
2: Yes, and this was to compare the incidence of adverse effects of calcium channel blockers and beta blockers in patients with atrial fibrillation and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction.
0: How about the methods that the authors chose? Do you think they were appropriate to answer their question they were asking? Yes. Do you think the cohort of patients was recruited in an acceptable way?
2: We're unsure about this one. There was a lack of details on how the authors determined if the patient received calcium channel blockers or beta blockers, who read the ECGs, who read the echoes? and any IRR data for these diagnostic tests.
0: Do you think that the exposure was accurately measured to minimize bias?
2: Also unsure. It's unclear whether this was simply done by searching the electronic medical record to identify patients who received these interventions or another method was used.
0: Do you think that the outcome of interest was accurately measured to minimize bias?
2: Unsure. And we'll talk more about this in the Talk Nerdy section.
0: Oh, I love talking nerdy. All right, so have the authors identified all important confounding factors?
2: Unsure. They did not account for the interventions patients may have received prior to or during the ED resuscitation that may have contributed to adverse outcomes, things like fluids for patients with apparent sepsis.
0: Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes. How, how precise were the results? Unsure. They did not provide
1: confidence intervals around the point estimates.
0: Timlin, do you believe the results? I do. Can you apply these results from this cohort of patients to your local population?
1: Unsure. Our local demographic in the Lehigh Valley is a bit different from those listed in the study.
0: And do the results of this study itself fit with other available information on the topic?
1: Yes. The results of this study do support current guidelines of low-level evidence against calcium channel blockers because they could worsen heart failure, although prior studies have not shown similar findings.
0: And then the final question we always like to know about conflicts of interest or funding of this study, those types of things.
1: There were no conflicts of interest noted.
0: All right, that goes through the quality checklist. Let's get to the results section. They screened 169 patients, but were able to include 125. They had 57 receiving Diltiazam and 68 receiving Metoprolol. The mean age of patients included in the study was 62 years, three quarters were male, and then the average ejection fraction was 16%. The mean initial dose of Diltiazam provided was 16 milligrams and for Metoprolol it was five milligrams. What was the key result?
2: There was no statistical difference in adverse effects due to the interventions.
0: Yeah, so for that primary outcome that they were looking at, what did they find?
2: The
1: composite outcome of adverse effects due to each intervention um, was 32% versus 21%, though with a p-value of 0.217.
0: And so that... That was no statistical difference. That's what the little asterisk means on that p-value. Not that we want to dichotomize too much on p-value, but there was no statistical difference in any type of the components of the composite outcome except for worsening congestive heart failure symptoms. It was 33% versus 15%, which gave a p-value of 0019
1: Worsening congestive heart failure was driven by increased oxygen requirement within four hours.
0: And for their secondary outcomes, again, there was no statistical difference in any of the secondary outcomes. And we will put a table in the show notes for people to review. How about the admission to level of care?
1: So admission level of care was 33% versus 32% general. 51% versus 44% step down. And for patients requiring ICU, it was 16% versus 24%.
0: All right, that's enough of the results section. Now my favorite part of the show. This is the time where we get to talk nerdy. So I'm gonna ask Matt and Timlin to talk nerdy to me. And of course, we have five things that we wanted to go through that, perhaps um, represent some limitations to the study. Now, I'm gonna start and not include this in one of the five, because it's the most obvious nerdy point, and that is, this is an observational study design. And that means that there could be unmeasured confounders that uh, could be responsible for the results reported, and you can't control for unmeasured confounders And so this could cause bias to be introduced into the study. So we need to be cautious and not over-interpret observational data. But let's go through five issues or limitations within this publication. Who's got the first one?
2: I'll take this one, Ken. The study analyzed data from unbalanced groups. Patients who received diltiazem were typically younger and had higher baseline blood pressures. So they may have been less likely to become hypotensive, which the paper defined as primarily as a systolic blood pressure, less than 90 millimeters of mercury, rather than a measured drop in the blood pressure itself.
0: And so the researchers can take steps to control for those things when you have unbalanced groups. If you've measured something, then you can control for it after the fact. The second point was about small sample size.
1: Yes, the study did suffer from a small sample size. Uh, There was an 11% absolute difference between the 2 drugs and incidence of adverse effects. Uh, But this difference was not statistically significant. It is possible that a larger sample size would have reported a difference that was statistically significant. Um, However, the observational nature of this study would only provide low level evidence.
0: Yeah, so when you've got a small sample size that, you know, you can have wide confidence intervals around the point estimate and that 95% confidence interval can cross uh, the line of no difference. How about the third thing?
1: So there was some bias uh, that was probably introduced by the observer expectancy effect. In the discussion portion of the article, they do mention guidelines recommending against the use of diltiazem in patients with AFib, with RBR. Who have decompensated heart failure with reduced ejection fraction as it may worsen heart failure, uh, despite minimal confirmatory evidence for this. Outcomes measured by increased oxygen requirement, as they did in this study, and inotrope administration can often be subjective. And it is possible a greater number of patients in this cohort received interventions based solely
0: or mostly on provider expectations. All right, and the fourth one was about a lack of comparator. Now, they did have a comparator, but we're talking about another type of comparator. What were we getting at with this fourth nerdy point?
2: So it may have been useful to include a cohort of patients with atrial fibrillation, with rapid ventricular response without heart failure, and examine whether their adverse effects uh, would have been similar.
0: And then the fifth then, Final nerdy point was about parametric and non-parametric data analysis.
2: That's right. Parametric data analysis is typically performed when data is normally distributed and non-parametric data is best utilized when data is not normally distributed. Common tests for parametric data analysis are the chi-square test, student t-test, ANOVA by sum of squares, among others. Tests for non-parametric data analysis are the Fisher-Exact test, Wilcoxon signed rank test, Mann-Whitney-U test, ANOVA by rank, and Spearman rank coefficient. Prior studies have noted, applying parametric statistical tests to non-normally distributed data reduces power and increases type two error. In this study, descriptive statistics were used for baseline data analysis, which typically is used for non-normally distributed data. Using non-parametric tests may have affected the statistical significance of the data itself.
0: Murph, we may have lost a few people there. That was uber nerdy. We finished number five with an uber nerdy point. Um, So there may be some uber nerdy people listening to it and go, hey, you know what? I'd really like to know more about this parametric and non-parametric data analysis. So, Murph, I'm going to put in some links in the show notes so people can go in and go down that rabbit hole even further. But that ends that uh, section. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions.
1: My nerdy friend and I do agree with the author's conclusions, although would make a friendly amendment uh, to the first sentence to say there was no statistically significant difference in total adverse effects between heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patients treated with diltiazem versus metoprolol for acute atrial fibrillation.
0: Yeah, and this is just a friendly amendment. We could be getting a little pedantic, but by saying there was no difference, there was actually a difference between the two point estimates. They weren't the same, it's just they weren't statistically different. And so that's why we made that friendly amendment. All right, well, it's time to give an SGM bottom line.
2: At this point in time, there's insufficient evidence to suggest a difference in total adverse outcomes for patients presenting to the emergency department in atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response treated with IV diltiazem versus metoprolol.
0: All right. And how about uh, we resolve the case that you presented at the beginning of the podcast?
1: The patient is given five milligrams of IV metoprolol as a push dose, and his heart rate improves to the low 100s. He is feeling improved and thanks you for your help. The patient is subsequently admitted to the hospital for
0: further workup and
1: management.
0: And how are you going to take this observational study and apply it clinically?
1: As is so frequently the case, Ken, it all depends. The evidence is weak to suggest one treatment over another and physicians will need to rely more upon their clinical judgment. It may be prudent to use a beta blocker in a patient who is already on a beta blocker at home. Although overall adverse events have been similar between beta blockers and calcium channel blockers in the literature thus far, This study suggests diltiazem may have a higher risk of worsening heart failure, while metoprolol may be more likely to cause hypotension. This is consistent with the current AHA guidelines for rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation and CHF.
0: And so what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? How are you going to take this information and distill it down to a conversation that you can have with the patient?
2: Your heart is currently beating too fast. And we need to slow it down. One of the medications we use is like the medication you take at home. Another one works a little differently, but can be used for the same purpose. Both medications may drop your blood pressure to a critically low level or worsen your ability to breathe. If this happens, we can give you IV fluids or medication to raise your blood pressure, or we can give you oxygen to help you breathe.
0: All right, and now it's time for the Keener Contest. Last week's winner was Dave Michelson. He won again. He knew that on June 15th, 1667, the first direct blood transfusion to a human was performed by a physician, Jean-Baptiste Denis. Uh, He gave a feverish young man approximately 12 ounces of blood taken from a lamb. What's the Keener Contest question this week?
1: I know a lot of our listeners are going to like this one, Ken. Who is credited for publishing the first description of M-Mode echocardiography in 1953?
0: Yeah, it's always a challenge to figure out the trivia question. I don't want to make it too easy, you know, or too hard. So I hope I found the Goldilocks zone with this Keener question or trivia question or what you may refer to in the U.S. as the Gunner question. But if you know who published the first description of M-Mode Echoes in 1953, then all you have to do is send me an email, Sgem at gmail.com, with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, that's it uh, for our SGM Journal Club. I want to thank Timlin and Matt for being great guest skeptics and doing a great job of filling out the SGM critical appraisal form.
2: Oh, the pleasure is ours. Thanks, Ken. Absolutely, Ken. Thank you for having us. Hope we can talk more 80s movies next time.
0: Oh, I'm always open to talking about 80s movies. In fact, last night, my daughters and I, while we're on holidays here, we watched the classic... <laughs> Stand by me. What a great movie. All right, so the final part of the show is to read the SGM tagline. So gentlemen, can you give the SGM tagline?:
1: Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you've heard it on the Skeptics Guide
2: to Emergency Medicine.:
0: Talk to everyone next time. Cause it makes no difference.